Our scripture today is from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. And the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. And he called to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those around who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God for the people of God. Would you please stand as we sing hymn number 614? For the bread which you have broken, we'll sing verses 1, 2, and 4. For the bread which you have broken, for the wine which you have poured, for the words which you have spoken, now we give you thanks, O Lord, by this pledge that you do love us, by your gift of After a few dates with a really cute guy, he invited me to attend Mass at the Catholic Church he was attending on Guadalupe Boulevard in Austin, Texas. He wanted me to come and hear him play guitar and sing. Well, I didn't want to tell him I wasn't Catholic and that I'd never been to Mass, so what did I tell him? Sure, I'll be there. I did not know what I was doing the whole time, (laughs) but I enjoyed myself. And the cute guy, well, he really could play and sing. 
After Mass, he asked me if I were Greek Orthodox, which really confused me. No, I said. Why did you ask me that? Well, because you crossed yourself in the opposite way. That made me laugh out loud. (laughs) I had to admit, I'm United Methodist, and I was just mirroring the priest up front. Then we both had a good laugh. After a few more dates, I learned a few more things about my future husband. He was an Air Force brat. He loved to read. He wrote songs. He was deeply religious. And he called Jesus Brother Jesus. Hmm. Brother Jesus. Could I call Jesus? Brother? Theologians have debated the divinity of Jesus for ages. The traditional argument centered around that they were trying to prove that Jesus was just not a moral teacher and God, that he must be God. Either that or he was a very bad man or a very crazy man. One version that was put forth by C.S. Lewis, the famous English writer and philosopher, sometimes was sometimes described as lunatic liar or lord argument. Lunatic liar or lord argument. And the choices in this trilemma were difficult to accept. I can't see any of the choices, lunatic liar or lord, really being descriptors of Jesus the Christ, the Savior of humankind. It's too confusing. So let us step back a moment and take a close look at Mark's words this morning in his gospel. Those that that had thought that they knew Jesus the longest and the best, his oldest family and friends, cannot comprehend all the stir that's going around her, the turmoil that is coming from Jesus and all those that follow him. Their conclusion is, is that Jesus was out of his mind, it says in Mark, in the third chapter, the 21st verse. Jesus' popularity is growing. He's performing miracles, cleansing lepers, restoring a withered hand, saying strange things like, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Your sins are forgiven, and you are my disciples, and I give you the authority to cast out demons. Heard separately from what we know of the Gospels, those are very unusual statements, aren't they? He was drawing a very large amount of very uncomfortable attention to himself, so much so that two groups, those that were closest to him as well as those who were threatened by him began asking the same question. Is this guy crazy? In verse 21, we see his loved ones even staging what we today psychologically would call an intervention. Have you heard of those? It was a failed one. It says in the gospel, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And in verse 22, the religious establishment in the fourth chapter says he is possessed 
by Beelzebub. Beelzebub was an ancient demon who we sometimes call Satan today. Well, we, while we have the benefit of our faith and our perspective after 2,000 years to understand that Jesus was not crazy or possessed, his family at that time and place did not. With our resurrection perspective, we know Jesus was not mad. He was just challenging the powers and the principalities of this world. Think about, well, King Herod, Pilate, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Caesar Augustus. Remember how he said from his very beginning of ministry that God's kingdom is at hand. That comes from Matthew the fourth chapter, the seventh verse. And it still surprises us and shakes our foundations today. And if it doesn't, it should. Think back then to the people of Jesus' time and place. Humanity had never seen such power on public display. It had never heard such values being spoken or taught. It had never witnessed such dynamic, charismatic, divine authority wrapped into such weakness. He was a homeless, self-made rabbi from Nazareth, the Galilee, the armpit of the Middle East, a nobody from nowhere. As Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Why, then, would anyone begin to listen to such a madman? Now, it's interesting, if you read the gospel story, and I encourage you to go back and read it for yourselves today, that Jesus doesn't seem overly bothered by the accusations. Instead, Jesus takes the response of those that are concerned about him and uses it to, to create a dividing line between saving faith and damning disbelief. Those who will be forgiven are those who can see beyond the jaw-dropping miracles and the alarming message. And behind it all, He hopes they will see the Spirit of God, the truth that he is God incarnate, the Holy One. A truth worth remembering is that the kingdom of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in our world, when on the move, will always disrupt and disturb a sane world. Think of the prophets we have known in our modern and postmodern period of history craziness is persistently violating the social norms with little regard for oneself. And if that is what described Jesus, the work of Jesus fits in perfectly. The world, you see, idealizes order, logic, reason. Yet God's people live by faith. And they love mystery. I don't know how many of you out there read mysteries, but I am absolutely obsessed by them. 
And I think that's because I love the mystery of God. I love that I do not know everything about God or about Jesus. I love the fact that I do not know when the Holy Spirit is going to show up. It is a mystery. A mystery. The world abuses the weak and attempts to fix the poor. God's people embrace the lowly as the greatest among us, as the Beatitudes said. The world regards and rewards the strongest and the most capable as the best. But God's people openly confess their struggles and repent of their sins. The world says, you are entitled to hurt those who hurt you. Yet we are taught we must love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. The world is full of people scrambling to stock up on earthly treasure before they die, yet they know they can't take it with them. God's people seek to give their treasure away in favor of treasure in heaven. The world's motto is love yourself and try not to hurt your neighbor. Our motto is love your neighbor and in so doing be willing to sacrifice yourself. The world sleeps in on Sundays and brunches before noon. We drag ourselves out of bed and sing praise to God whom we can't see and whom we believe is coming back. Here's the deal. If God is real, then by definition God is above and beyond all and any cultures, perspectives, or political views. No one person, culture, or tribe completely gets or understands God. That's the way it was meant to be from the beginning. Therefore, in some ways, when God breaks into the world through the Son, the Word, Spirit-filled people, God will, in some way, always offend the sensibilities of everyone at some time or another. As one parishioner once told me, over 20-some years ago, Pastor, you're not doing your job unless you have at least a few people mad at you. Nowhere in this is illustrated more vividly than the gospel itself. Consider all those who were so angry with Jesus for Jesus bringing God's kingdom on earth. For instance... Think of his life. The incarnation doesn't make sense. We read in Philippians, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human form, and found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even death on the cross. Or perhaps in 1 Corinthians, in the first chapter, consider the crucifixion. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved, it is the very power of God. Every other religious world system, um, world religious system, requires that the one being rescued do something, grow in a certain knowledge, demonstrate a certain obedience, 
We are told, however, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners and made us alive even though we were dead. Those are Paul's words in Romans. We bring nothing. We bring nothing. God, by his spirit, gives everything, all his mercy and grace. What learning and growing that we do is after the gift of God's grace through the Holy Spirit. Look at the first century church. We need only turn to the book of Acts, where dumbfounded, wide-eyed wonder, the world responded to those early believers. Look at them. They shared their homes, their livelihood, their food. They celebrated their struggles. They cared for one another. Remember how I said a few weeks ago that St. Augustus had marveled when not yet a believer? See how they love one another. What if the church embraced that heritage today? What if rather than worrying about fitting in and being relevant, the church chose to bear witness through the Holy Spirit to its full nature of mercy and grace? Everybody has that one neighbor on their block who just doesn't care what other people think. Do you have one? Maybe you're the neighbor. You know, the guy that puts his decorations up for Christmas and they're the gaudiest that anyone has. I confess my husband has a penchant for blow-up Santas and such. Checks his mail in his boxer shorts. Comes out to get the paper in his robe. Sits in the driveway with a smile on his face, drinking a can of beer and waving to everybody as they go by. What if the church was like that? The neighbor who doesn't really care about what they're doing or what people think. What if the the church was that guy? Would the church be less put off when the homeless woman wanders in on Sunday morning and offer her dignity? Would the church encourage radical generosity and bring its, its canned goods on the first Sunday to give back into the community? You know that kind of generosity that makes people talk behind your back and say, oh, I know that church. They do so much for everybody. Would the church start ministries that do more than entertain and educate, but to pursue the social outcast and without lack of regard for its reputation? Would she start preaching the demands of the the depths of God's demands for justice? and righteousness, yet counter it with jaw-dropping grace that is afforded in Christ. Jesus' friends and family were wondering if he was crazy. They stood outside and they called to him. They wanted to bring him home. They wanted their world to return to what it had always been. But their brother, they wanted their brother They wanted him back just as they had known him and their life that would be the same again, but it never would be the same again. Just as ours is never the same again when we say yes to God's invitation to love and forgiveness. That's what Holy Communion is about, saying an unqualified, 
infinite, loud yes. In the end, Jesus answers his family's request with words that have confused scholars for ages. He taught those standing around about the spiritual family he was creating. One, he said, that did the will of God. You see, he was trapped. No matter which way he answered, he could be in trouble. Either with the people who are listening because you respected your mother, right? Or with the Romans. How could he get out of this? By saying there is greater law than what we have on earth. Jesus appealed to a higher law, the law of God. Doing God's will would be the boundary for him that defined all boundaries. That is what he taught. The will of God would determine the boundary of family, of accepting Gentiles, of touching the unclean, of forgiving sins and healing the sick, of ministering to women. Brother Jesus had a message for his family and for those that he counted as family, those who were listening to him then and listening now for all people of all time. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister, my mother. And as for me, I'm still asking myself, can I call Jesus brother? Can you? Let us enter into the holy time of communion with Christ.